The Americans need to do a lot of soul searching here, James, is what do they want out of their lives? Do, you, do they like this crisis-filled life? If they do, then it's perfect. Just keep on keeping on with what you're doing. But if you want a normal life, a harmonious life, a peaceful life, uh, a, a life that is joyful and exciting, that you're not constantly worrying about, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there, uh, which the government is causing, then there's only one solution out of this thing, and that's to go back to some founding principles on, this, on which this country was founded. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com in a conversation that is being recorded on the 2nd of February, 2022, at least here on this side of the dateline. And today we are talking to a previous guest on The Corbett Report, so you should know him by now, at least if you have an elephant's memory and have been following the Gorbert Report for at least five years. We're talking today to Jacob Hornberger of the Future of Freedom Foundation, who we previously talked to uh, in 2017 about the ongoing JFK cover-up. Of course, I'll include the link to that previous conversation if you are interested in that incredibly important topic, but hopefully you know Jacob Hornberger from his own writing, which appears at the Future of Freedom Foundation at fff.org on well, if not a daily basis, at least several times a week. And uh, there is a lot of good information. Today we're going to be talking about a specific article that he penned recently called Crisis-Filled Lives, which, again, of course, I will be linking up in the show notes, but let's bring him on the program. Jacob Hornberger, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Well, it is a pleasure to talk to you about this article because it came along at an interesting time about a subject that I've been giving a fair deal of thought recently. I think I've thought about this quite a bit over the years, but specifically recently I've been thinking about this topic. And here is your article on crisis-filled lives, which starts rather provocatively. No one could deny that we Americans live crisis-filled lives, or even people around the world like myself. Right now, there is a major crisis in Ukraine with Russia. There is also an ongoing crisis with China, other foreign policy crises such as with Iran, Yemen, Afghanistan, Cuba, Iraq, and North Korea. There's a terrorism crisis, healthcare crisis, social security crisis, drug war crisis, immigration crisis, debt crisis, inflation crisis, fiscal crisis, monetary crisis. But there is a common denominator to all these crises, the federal government, and specifically the welfare warfare state political economic system under which we live. All right, Jacob Bornberger, you have the floor. Tell us a little bit about where you come from with this. Why is the welfare warfare state political economic system the root of all of these crises? Well, simply because it is. I mean, it, it has incited these foreign policy crises. If you look at Ukraine, you look at China, the trade war there, uh, the the keeping NATO in existence and then uh, using it to absorb war, former Warsaw Pact countries, moving inexorably closer to Russia's borders, knowing precisely what Russia's reaction would be. It'd be the same thing as if Russia were putting missiles in Cuba. We know what the reaction of U.S. officials was and would be if they did it again. Uh, we see the out-of-control federal spending to fund the entire welfare state, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, now the, the COVID-19 stimulus checks. We see the inflationary debauchery of the currency. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, and, and there is this common denominator. Now, where am I coming from? Well, if you look at America prior to the adoption of the welfare warfare state way of life, 
you didn't have any of these crises, none of them. Now, now that's not to say that life is would be perfect or life was perfect by any means. I mean, people have personal crises in their lives, deaths of family members, poverty, the business goes bankrupt. But in terms of these governmental crises, uh, there was really none of that. There was, uh, if you look at, for example, the founding of the country to around 1910, let's say for 110 years or 120 years, there was no big foreign policy crises. You didn't have a national security state. You didn't have a Pentagon, CIA, NSA. You didn't even have an FBI. You had no welfare state, no income tax, no IRS, no Federal Reserve. So you didn't have this monetary debauchery. You had sound money. You didn't have a social security crisis because you didn't have social security. All welfare, all uh, charity was voluntary. Uh, you didn't have these foreign wars because you didn't have a large enough military to go into Asia or Europe. Uh, so that's where I'm coming from is Americans need to do a lot of soul searching here, James, is what do they want out of their lives? Do, you, do they like this crisis-filled life? If they do, then it's perfect. Just keep on keeping on with what you're doing. But if you want a normal life, a harmonious life, a peaceful life, uh, a, a life that is joyful and exciting, that you're not constantly worrying about, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there, uh, which the government is causing, then there's only one solution out of this thing, and that's to go back to some founding principles on, this, on which this country was founded. All right. As my regular listeners will know, I tend to be in accord with what you're saying, but let me try to steel man the other side of the argument and say that, well, you're being naive here, Jacob. Uh, just basic reading of history will tell us that there were all sorts of exactly these types of crises before the institution of the federal um, welfare warfare state, as, as you call it. For example, I mean, you can go back to the XYZ affair from the late 18th century for examples of foreign policy crises that occurred even during the time of a relatively small federal government. We can look to um, the uh, bank runs, which defined so much of the 19th century, even during this time in which supposedly there was some version of sound money, even after the death of the Second Bank of the United States and before the founding of the Federal Reserve. You can look to the opioid crisis in, for example, in China that was exacerbated by wealthy families, including those in the United States that went on to found Skull and Bones, um, that was exacerbating uh, 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 drug crises in other countries and foreign entanglements of those sorts. So it can't simply be the welfare warfare state that's at the root of all of these problems, can it? Well, yeah, what I'm talking about is is massive societal-wide uh, crises that in a, in a free market society, sure, you're going to have things go wrong. You've got businesses going bankrupt. That's a crisis for the businesses going bankrupt. A particular bank might be uh, in a precarious position. People go in there and they, they sense that the, the bank's under financial stress. They go in there and they want their gold coins. They're, they'll go over, get in there to redeem their, their bank notes. They're trying to get their deposits out. So, yeah, things go wrong in a free market society on an individual basis. What we're talking about with the welfare warfare state is massive societal-wide crises. I mean, like, like the immigration crisis. Well, were there a lot of immigrants coming into the United States in the 19th century? Of course. Did this create problems for people? Of course. I mean, these people were penniless. Many of them couldn't speak English. Uh, that, that creates big problems, personal crises. But nothing like the, the immigration crisis societal-wide where you've got these massive 
group of people that are trying to get into the country. They can't get in because of the immigration controls. Then you've got the deportations and the police state along the border. That's the type of crisis I'm talking about. Um, you, you can talk about a localized type of crisis, the XYZ affair or whatever. The Mexican War was a crisis. I'm talking about the massive type crisis. It comes like World War One, where you have tens of thousands of people killed uh, with, with no beneficial results whatsoever. Or World War Two, uh, which leads to the Cold War. And then so you've got this massive Cold War. It's those types of crises I'm talking about, that the big ones, the ones that the government is causing as compared to the individual type crisis or the localized crisis that government might cause. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, drug problems. Sure. In, in 19th century America, there was an alcoholism problem. Um, somebody might call that a crisis. Well, I don't call it a crisis. I just I think it's a problem. Uh, that was why the temperance movement came into existence. But when you look at the drug war, making drugs illegal or making alcohol illegal, that's the type of crisis I'm talking about. One that the government itself is causing or exacerbating. All right, so let's uh, let's step back for a moment because the reason that I have been interested in this topic of late is because I I genuinely palpably sense that this idea of crisis filled lives being the 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 sort of defining feature of our lives in the 21st century is not just a, a mere unintentional side effect of the growth of government. I think it is an intentional effect. I think we are being steeped into a new form of a, a new paradigm of governance itself, which is predicated on constant crisis in order to justify the further growth of the government and centralization of power. Obviously, this relates to the, the, the growth of Leviathan that has been pointed out by writers in the past, but I think it takes on a new uh, form in the 21st century with obviously the, the terrorism scare of the first two decades, which led to the the growth, the incredible growth of the Homeland Security State, the creation of the Department Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, all of these other uh, uh, previously unthinkable abrogations of freedom. And now, of course, we are seeing that flipped over into the biosecurity paradigm, where suddenly now it's not just scary turban boogeymen who are uh, plotting uh, against us at all times. Now, you, yourself, you, Jacob Hornberger, could be an asymptomatic spreader, and so you must be sick until proven healthy, and we must uh, limit and and uh, all of your interactions, transactions, your ability to move and to, to associate with others on the basis of this. I think this is not a mere side effect of the, 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 the growth of the government. I think this is actually part of a plan. But I would be interested to see your take on the, this biosecurity paradigm that's clearly coming into view now. Well, let, let me address the, the national security state aspect of this, because I, I completely agree with you there with respect to our warfare state or national security state. Uh, a national security state is, is really an alien type of governmental system to America. We were founded as a limited government republic. It's a totally different kind of governmental system. There's openness, there's transparency, there's no big Pentagon, military industrial complex, CIA, NSA. We had a small, relatively small, basic military force to protect you know, people, settlers moving out west and so forth. But nothing of the size to, to intervene in Europe's forever wars or Asia's wars and so forth. Well, all that changed at the end of World War II and when America was, was converted into a national security state. And 
a national security state necessarily depends on keeping people afraid. If you don't keep people afraid, then people are going to say, well, what do we need a national security state for? What good are you? You're not protecting us from anything. There's no threats out there. So let's restore our limited government republic. So I don't have any doubts that many of the crises have been instigated by the national security state. They need crises in order to justify their existence. I'm talking about the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Without official enemies out there, a constantly shifting array of, of official enemies, people are going to say, well, we don't need you. So they, they, they really need the official enemies. So they will seize on a crisis to say, you see, you need us, that you have to keep funding us with your budgets and, and taxpayer-funded largesse and our army of defense contractors need to be paid and our overseas military bases need to be funded and our empire bases here. It goes on and on. Uh, so they're going to seize on any crisis. But I have absolutely no doubt that they incite the crises uh, in order to generate more fear among the, the citizenry. Now, on the welfare state side, I, I don't think it's as plotted out like that. I, I think it's more of a an inadvertent side effect of this welfare state way of life. I don't think somebody sits up there and says, let's adopt these government programs so that we can destroy the monetary system. I think the destruction of the monetary system comes as a natural byproduct of this way of life. But having said that, once again, if there is a crisis, the bureaucrats are going to seize on it. And that's where you get uh, the growth of Leviathan. Uh, the, the great writer Robert Higgs has written a lot about this. His great book, Crisis and Leviathan. He points out that with each crisis, the government gets larger and more powerful. When the crisis is over, it recedes a bit, but never to the point that it was before the crisis. So then with each new crisis, the Leviathan gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what's happened with the welfare state way of life, uh, whether the crisis is Social Security or Medicare or health care. Now we've got uh, COVID. I mean, there's I, I don't think anybody planned that. But boy, they have seized on it as an opportunity to destroy liberties. And when you talk about homeland security, they seized on 9-11. We, we all as libertarians. We knew they were going to do that. And that's why we continue reminding people when there's not crises, especially when there's not crises, is that now's the time to do the soul searching and get rid of this national security state, get rid of this welfare state and restore the founding principles of a free market, limited government society. Well, I appreciate that point of view. I personally do not subscribe to the incompetence, oops, did we do that theory of how these crises arrive, even when it comes, for example, to the welfare state. And I would point to the research of someone like Anthony Sutton on Wall Street and FDR, who plotted out the financial ties to the development of the corporate welfare state as a type of corporate socialism to benefit the financial interests that were obviously, uh, obviously are trying to centralize power as much as possible so that they can more better control um, that money and, and how it is directed in society. Having said that, I, I completely agree with your ultimate, your overall sort of diagnosis of what this problem is, except perhaps on one point. And uh, I'll, I'll point uh, again to the Crisis-Filled Lives article that we're discussing here. Um, I think it's important if we're going to turn to the proscriptive solutions for what to do about this problem that we put the emphasis on the right syllable. So let's look at this paragraph. What is important to recognize is that none of this is necessary. By choosing 
a welfare warfare state way of life. America's Americans have chosen to live lives filled with crises. That's because crises are an inherent part of the welfare warfare way of life. I, I understand, I, I certainly understand where this is coming from. And I, I think this is reflective of probably the sense of a lot of people in the United States that, well, this is the system and it's come about because we voted for it. But have Americans really chosen this way of life? Have they consciously chosen the welfare warfare state? Or is this something that has been imposed through top-down behavioral uh, uh, psych- psychological change techniques in order to persuade the public that this is the best way to go along and uh, this system has been foisted on them? And regardless of your answer to that, then what can people do to actually change this? Are they going to go to the ballot box and vote in the next politician that promises to reduce the size of government? Yeah, that, that, those are fascinating questions. Uh, yeah, I often wondered what caused the generation of Americans that, that revolutionized America's system, like the welfare state that came into existence in the 1930s and to a certain extent before then, what caused them to give up a system uh, that where you had no income tax, no IRS, no mandatory charity, uh, no big military industrial complex. Uh, it's just, it's phenomenal. And I think it's really the power of ideas. Now, you you raise a very interesting question is, have people really chosen this? And, and I think that the, the answer is complex because in order to choose something, somebody's got to recognize that these crises are government driven. I think there's, there's a lack of awareness of that. If you take, for example, inflation, uh, you, you see the, the old myths now coming out that inflation is caused by those greedy profiteers, the service station owners that are out there raising their prices. Uh, I mean, the, the average American, I think it's gotten better where they recognize that it really is the government, the Federal Reserve that's, that's debasing the currency. But I think there's still a lot of people out there just they're totally innocent and think, oh, no, the government has nothing to do with this. This is all rapacious, greedy, seeking profit um, earning people and businessmen. So what I try to do at the Future Freedom Foundation is is make people aware. You know, there, there was a great book by a German psycho- psychologist or psychiatrist. This is, I forget her name, but thou shalt not be aware. And I think that's what the government's main objective here is. They don't want people to be aware because when people become aware of, oh, these crises are caused by the government, well, now you can make some choices. Well, do I want this way of life or do I not want this way of life? And for a person that says, like me, I don't want this way of life, then that's where you raise the next question. What can he do about it? How, how, do, you, how do you get rid of this way of life? I, I want to get rid of it. I want to restore some, uh, uh, a way of life that brings us peace and harmony and joy and excitement in life instead of this constant crisis-driven uh, society. Well, again, that's where the power of ideas come in. I, I have total faith in the power of ideas, that, that sound ideas can replace bad ideas, that if they could bring into existence this dysfunctional way of life, we can fling this dysfunctional way of life out of here. But in order to do that, you've got to convince a critical mass of people that this is a better way to go. And then what, what then brings that catalyst? I don't know. I don't think anybody can brick, predict it. I don't think there's a central plan for achieving a genuinely free society. I think it's more the results of human action rather than human design. And that's where the power of ideas come in. It's, it's what you and I are doing right now, discussing ideas. You can never measure the power of what you and I are doing right now. It's immeasurable. 
But I think that's the ultimate key. I am in accord with that sentiment. It is the intentionality of a number of individuals all coming to similar conclusions based on similar data, looking at things from a similar perspective. How do we do that? We have conversations with each other. We learn about new things from each other. We spread ideas and the best ideas will win uh, in a competition, if it is such a, a competition. What is disruptive of that is the government messaging and uh, the attempt to incite fear in the public. And in fact, this is exactly in line with what I was talking about with Ian Davis yesterday in our conversation on acceptance of and commitment to freedom, where we were talking about such things as the Spy B group in the UK, the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviors subgroup of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE advisory board to the UK government, which came out in March 2020 with a document advising the UK government on how to incite fear in the public in order to increase their compliance with the diktats of the health technocrats. Yes, this isn't conspiracy theorizing. There, There's the paper. I will link it up in the show notes once again so people can read it for themselves. They are trying to incite fear in the public in order to make them compliant. That is a key, I think, to all of this, isn't it? If they are trying to incite fear and gener generate crises in order to make us compliant, then the obvious corollary of that is, well, then if we do not live in fear, if we understand what is happening, why it is happening, and where they are attempting to take us versus where we actually want to go, then the power is ours, is it not? Absolutely. And, and by understanding and seeing through what they're doing, it really does bring you a sense of inner peace. Uh, you, you don't get all stirred up when you see what's going on. You can say, okay, I understand. This is what they're doing. It's the same old game they always play. And that gives you a sense of comfort that you understand what's happening, even if you can't change it on an individual basis. Uh, with, with that understanding comes a sense of inner peace that I think is uh, very, very helpful to an individual. All right. Well, so many incredibly important topics here to explore. I think we've just started this conversation, but hopefully there will be uh, more conversations to follow. But on that note, I know this is very much in accord with the type of work that you do at the Future of Freedom Foundation. For people who don't know about it yet, tell us about the FFF. Well, it's a nonprofit educational foundation. As you can gather, we, we set forth the principal case for the libertarian philosophy. I, I've been a libertarian for, oh gosh, for I don't know, 50 years now, and uh, FFF was founded some 32 years ago by me as a libertarian foundation. I, I believe that this is the key. I mean, you know, there'd be a reason to be depressed, James, if there was no way out of this. I mean, we'd be maybe passing out cyanide capsules at the end of your show or something. But what what's nice about this whole thing is that there's a way out. I mean, that's that's the reason why you know I stay optimistic and hopeful. Uh, because you never know when things are going to shift. People might wake up and say, hey, wait, these libertarians are right. We don't need this whole welfare state. We don't need this warfare state. We can restore the sound founding principles. I mean, we know there were some bad founding principles in America, slavery being the most notable example. But there were some good founding principles, and that's what we need at this point, some national soul searching. We need to be discussing and debating things at a higher level, like what should be the role of government in a free society? And once people start discussing and debating questions like that, we're well on our road to, to getting a peaceful, prosperous, freedom-oriented society and a harmonious society. 
Well, I'm on board with that agenda, and I hope people will check out fff.org generally, and specifically Crisis-Filled Lives, the article that we've been talking about today. Definitely some food for thought in the times that we're living through, and some ideas for the way forward. So, Jacob Hornberger, I thank you for bringing this to, uh, to our attention today. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thank your viewers for tuning in and listening.